Let's sit. No more Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. Today is no Let's Talk Social Justice with your host, Kevin Yowie. Good morning, AAA Murray Country. I'm Kevin Yowie and it's Tuesday. So you know what that means. Today on Let's Talk, we're yarning all things social justice. I have a really special guest coming up um, on today's show, but as a Waka Waka and South Sea Islander man, I am a visitor to this country. So I'd like to first, in foregrounding Indigenous sovereignty, acknowledge the traditional owners, custodians and caretakers of these lands that I meet on and pay my respects to the elders past and present. This is the second episode in our second mini-series here on Let's Talk Social Justice. This one looking into the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people embody our sovereignty and assert our self-determination every single day. Picking up on the themes that we started drawing out in our first series on state-sanctioned colonial violence, this series looks at the big and small ways that we all have challenged the violence of the state. This week, we are thinking about everyday resistance and refusal in the legal profession what it looks like to challenge racism in a system that remains premised on racism, and what it looks like for Aboriginal lawyers trying to assert their sovereignty and hold down the front lines in advocating for the dignity and justice of their clients and colleagues. This morning, we are thrilled to be joined on the phone this week by my dear friend, Jane Christian, a biomedical woman, social justice lawyer and advocate. Jane, welcome to Let's Talk Social Justice. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who's your mob? Where'd you grow up? And how's things down there? Hey, Kevin Yao Yi. My mob are Baramadical Mob of the Darug Nation, which is the Sydney area. So worry me to any Darug mob who are listening. And I'm in sunny Wagga Wagga today, which is where I grew up. And this is Wiradjuri country on the Murrumbidja, also known as the Murrumbidja River. Yeah, and you, um, you're currently not living in Wagga Wagga, though. You're just visiting, right? You know me, I'm a bit transient. That's yeah. <laughs> well, talking about transient, Jane, do you want to tell the listeners how actually you and I have come into each other's lives? We've known each other for a few years now. Yeah, it, it has been a few, hasn't it? So we, we went to South Africa together um, on an Indigenous exchange to build eco gardens at a rural South African primary school. It feels like a lifetime ago, Jane. Many lifetimes ago. Lots has happened. A lot of water under the bridge since then. (laughs) (laughs) Jane, maybe we'll get a yarn yarn a bit more about our our trip to South Africa. But I guess one of the reasons we were keen to talk to you for this week's show is because there's been a lot of commentary in the past couple of weeks here in Queensland about the legal system and its treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. For those listening who haven't been keeping up with the reporting, Basically, the Queensland Labor government announced a massive new tough-on-crime package in a response to some very prominent community advocacy around youth crime crises, especially in North Queensland. One important thing to point out up front is that this this reporting on youth crime crises has completely ignored the fact that it just happens to coincide with one of the worst housing crises in recent decades, with massive increases to cost of living, with serious underfunding of mental health services, especially for young people, and with the reality that a whole generation of young people are coming into adulthood with no feasible vision of a future because we just keep approving new coal and gas projects that are ruining this planet. But hey, who needs to talk about those things when we can simply talk about crime waves apparently and out of control kids instead? Jane, I'm wondering, with your experience in the legal profession, 
and you've been a lawyer for, for some years now. Um, for listeners who are trying to make sense of these proposals in Queensland, can you start by helping us to understand how racism operates in the legal system? I can try. I, um, I myself have been trying to keep across what's, what's happening up there with these youth, with the changes to the Youth Justice Act. Say oh. um, when I was reading up on it, the first red flag I saw was that um, it was the way it was worded in the article was government had listened to the community and would introduce a new offence in the Youth Justice Act. And that's just become such a trigger point for me because whenever you hear that government is listening, um, it's always a red flag for, but they were going to do what they were going to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. And Right. And I think um, as Aboriginal people, that's one thing that you get really highly sensitised to, that, you know, you know, you know the way they think and you know the way they act. Um, and this narrative, government narrative of we are listening um, has just become almost a rubber stamp to make themselves feel good about doing what they were going to do anyway. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, but yeah, saying that, I think, you know, creating more reasons to lock kids up is shameful. Mm. Um, and I also read up youth detention centres are full with about 80 children currently held in adult watch houses. Um, and it's just such a sad indictment on society. And I know that, you know, we know that kids shouldn't be locked up mm. at all. <laughs> And I appreciate that, you know, like the Raise the Age campaign is at least trying to get Australia in line with international standards. Yeah. But it's still such a low isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Jane, a lot of the focus on racism in the legal system rightly focuses on the way that legal processes function to reproduce racist outcomes for defendants, leading to hyper-incarceration and over-policing of racialized communities. But in the last year or so, you've also been trying to push critical conversations about racism that you and others face as workers in the legal system and particularly in public services like legal aid. Jane, can you talk a bit about why we also need to pay attention to the way that racism operates within these organisations? Yeah, absolutely. Probably firstly to say that obviously everything that comes out of this colony, um, the people, the institutions, the systems are racist in their basic nature because that's the very nature of the colony, isn't it? Mm. And you, you can't have a whole society built on attempted black gen genocide and not see that as a thread that runs through everything about it. Um, and, you know, racism, you know, it was an ideology before it was an, act an action um, and not a lot has altered <laughs> in the Australian psyche um, since it took hold here. And so I think um, when we look at the legal profession and the legal industry, um, a lot of people are running around trying to close the gap, right? It's mm. all about closing the gap mm. for blackfellas. Um, and it just seems so counterproductive to me that often for Aboriginal people coming into these spaces, um, there's an inherent power imbalance because mob go in for mob and that's their interest in being there. And so we're much more likely to let things slide and to cop a fair bit of bad treatment. Mm. Um, but white folks, would never be asked to do <laughs> or, you know, never have to consider doing yep. um, just to be able to stay in the game and be there for mob. And so, you know, I just find it so counterproductive that a lot of the work being done is in the name of closing the gap for blackfellas, but how are you actually doing that when you're running blackfellas into the ground? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that part. Jane, you spoke about, um, you know, black lawyers coming into the profession wanting to be of service to mob and community. Um, you've been um, uh, a lawyer for a number of years now. You actually wanted to be a lawyer from a very young age, that's right? Yeah, that's right. I always, from a very young age, around four or five years old, I, it was just truth. I would always just say, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> Jane, I know um, being friends with you for a number of years now, you've always talked about wanting to be a, a lawyer from a very young age. Um, what was it like coming into the profession that you dreamt about for so long and, and actually um, finding the violence within it? Um, yeah, it was really difficult. I think what people underestimate is the compounding effect of it because the truth for me is that from the step, like the second I stepped foot inside legal aid, it was there. Mm. Um, but because you know, for whatever reasons, you're young, you don't yet have your education, um, you know, you can be tempted to just think, oh, that's a, a bad apple, mm. um, that's one person who's me like that. But then when you look 10 years down the track and you come up against it again and again and again, um, you know, that's how you develop this utter knowing of what, what's happening and not what's going on. And then I think the next part of processing that is realising, oh, if this is happening to me, it's actually happening to a lot of people. And then that's when you really um, know that you have to do something about it. And it's really um, not a, a few bad apples. It's in, in fact, the whole system's rotten to its core, right? Absolutely. Jane, Professor Chelsea Wadigo, who appeared on the ABC 730 report with you last year when you were calling out some of the systemic racism within legal aid, um, Chelsea often talks about the, the tipping point moment for people working in racist organisations and institutions. Um, the moment when you just realise that you're not willing to take it anymore, what was it that pushed you to finally talk about it publicly, um, about the abuse that um, blackfellas are experiencing in some of these institutions? On that 7.30 report, I did outline an incident. And at the time that that incident happened to me, in fact, that very night I went home and, you know, we know that stress affects the immune system and I don't know what it was. I don't know if I ate something that was a bit on the turn or what it was, but I was violently ill that night. And I actually had the ambulance at my house because my nausea was just so bad. And um, I lost my voice for six days straight off the back of that last incident happening to me. And so I was, um, it was six days before I could even like verbally report it to a manager. And I had to sit in myself for that time. Oh. But also within the same week, um, another Aboriginal person had come to me um, to tell me about a bad racialized experience that they had had in legal aid. Mm. Um, and I was also aware of another Aboriginal worker who had left the job um, and, you know, had, had also suffered the violence of the institution. And so for me, it was realising that, you know, three in one week, <laughs> usually it's, it's spread out. Like we all help each other through it at different times. Mm. But I was just alarmed um, and then becoming so sick and really having to sit in myself for that period of time. You know, even my mum said, you know, now's the time, Jane, you either use your voice or you lose it. And so I come out of that period just determined to, you know, not stop. Yeah, absolutely. And shout out to Jules too, who I know will be tuning in and listening intensely. For listeners, whenever I call Jane, often Jane is with her mum, Jules. So we call it the Jane and Jules Show. So the Jane and Jules Show, thank you for joining me on AAA Let's Talk this morning. <laughs> um, no, but you're absolutely right, Jane. And when I, I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head in talking about the impact of racialized violence on the body. And in my work, and, and we talk about this often, it's um, not surprising that non-Indigenous people just 
simply do not understand or appreciate the very real impact on our physical, but also on our, on our mental and our, and our spirit as well. Is that something that coming through this experience with legal aid that you have had to um, sort of share with others as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's such a experience because being in these spaces it wears your spirit down it wears your Mm. self-esteem down um absolutely all of those things are happening but then you know as we do we exist outside these places and so in the places i exist outside of legal aid um you are more celebrated and mob are there for you and you know, keeping you up and reminding you who you are. Mm. Um, I'm very lucky that it has been challenging in every kind of way. As always, it's Blackfellas sustaining Blackfellas. Yeah, absolutely. Jane, what has been the most challenging thing about trying to draw attention to the way that racism operates in the legal profession? Has there been much pushback from your colleagues in the legal profession? Um, It's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of support. I don't think anyone really feels safe using their voices, but they've felt more compelled to use their voice as well. Yeah. Um, there have been a lot of behind-the-scenes support from allies or at least people wanting to be allies. Yeah, um, bless. And, um, <laughs> bless. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of support, but then what you also are aware of is just the ignorance and that, you know, they really dig their heels in that they're not the problem or something's been blown out of proportion or it's not fair. The one thing I hear back, what we've got to remember, right, is that the people who are the problem are working with the people who think they're the problem. Mm. But it's almost like grandiose disorder where they can't possibly fathom that they're the problem or anyone else perceives them that way. So they're quite vocal in their thoughts about things. (laughs) And so a lot ends up coming back through the Koori grapevine. But even looking at legal aid PMES, survey results this year and that's the down here in New South Wales the Public Service Commission you know asks the public service how we're coping and people tell them yep and one thing about those stats that I notice is that the majority of people align with the organizational values and the majority of people are happy and you know that doesn't surprise me at all because it's the majority of the people that are the problem right <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah that part <laughs> And so, you know, you see these stats and people would be really happy to see those stats. And I see those stats and I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. So <laughs> what do you do? Bless. Yeah. Look, I'm, <clears throat> I'm wondering, Jane, what would you say to listeners who might have assumed that organisations like Legal Aid would be better than other institutions in terms of challenging or refusing racism? I would say, you know, I think that's been one of the really difficult things for a lot of people to grapple with is that, you know, there's a whole lot of good intention on legal aid's part and, you know, particularly in the context of the public service, it is a pocket that does better than most. Um, but, you know, that those things can be true, but it doesn't diminish what our experience is of being in those spaces. Mm. And I think, you know, one, one premise to clear up as well um, is that, you know, racial violence You know, it's not necessarily, like we said before, drawing blood. It's that, you know, ongoing compounding impact that it has on people. And so, you know, just because people can be nice in a workplace, sometimes that's worse because it actually allows these behaviours to flourish unchecked um, because everything looks normal on the surface, but it's, it's not and it's not okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, um, you know, for, for listeners who um, who are non-Indigenous, who are listening into this conversation, might be very surprised to hear that this actually takes place in, in legal aid. But I'd like to remind everyone that a lot of these institutions are still colonial institutions um, that are designed not necessarily for us or to support us. Um, a lot of effort and money goes into... Um, PR campaigns to dress it up with bells and whistles to make it look like they're supporting blackfellas, but in real fact, um, they can be very detrimental to um, our health and well-being, particularly um, for mob like yourself who are on the inside trying to do the work, but realizing that actually the the whole system um, is rotten. Um, when your story went to ABC um, and your name was. Um, you know, up and bright lights, so to speak. Um, I know that a lot of people come out of the woodwork to sort of try and provide some support. Um, what did that support look like and was it actually helpful? No, not always. You know, when you're vulnerable, there's genuine support and you can feel that. Um, but there's also, you know, just energy vampires that come out of the woodworks. Um, and I faced a lot of that, people coming forward in the name of help and support, um, who have actually caused, caused damage to me um, and to the issues that I've been speaking about. Yeah, I think just because people are on the same side in some respects doesn't mean that your interests are aligned. And that's been a lesson that I've had to keep learning through this process as well. Yeah. And at the same time, like not only did you have a story on ABC 730 report, Jane, but I know that um, the National Indigenous Times NIT newspaper also ran a story as well. Um, and I know, yeah, did you feel supported through, through black media? I felt very supported through the National Indigenous Times. Um, the article that they ended up printing for me was, an article which Indigenous X um, had first looked at and then, you know, just went quiet. And so, of course, you know, when you're in a space of really active trauma, oh. that kind of stuff feels really bad. It lets you down. Um, and so just throughout it all, you know, for all the support, there has been the setbacks as well and it's come from all angles. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Jane, I know that you've been doing some organising lately to push, obviously, the introduction and implementation of a positive duty on employers to provide a racism-free workplace as part of the broader commitment to any discrimination laws here in Australia. I'm wondering, Jane, can you talk about what this means and what sort of response you've had from politicians you've approached? Yes, when the National Indigenous Times articles um, went out at the end of August, it also launched an open letter um, which was addressed to the National Legal Aid Commission, different politicians and, you know, legal stakeholders seeking their response and to further the discussion that had been started. It's very interesting about a positive duty because I've had a, a mix of responses. The National Legal Aid, their response was that they do um, advocate through submissions for a positive duty in this space. But yet, you know, I, I reached out to Minister Linda Burney, who referred my correspondence to um, Minister Tony Burke. Yeah. Um, and his off their response was, it was really odd. It really showed that they weren't across what the issue was that they were being um, asked about. Because on the one hand, some people are saying, you know, yes, there needs to be positive duties and we're advocating for that. From his office, I got a, a really weird response about how 
work health safety laws already impose a positive duty by saying that, you know, employers are to provide harassment-free, discrimination-free um, workplaces. And I think, you know, the amount of um, politicians and that that have replied telling me that the Racial Discrimination Act protects me um, really feels like a form of gaslighting because practically it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it might look good on paper. might have that intent. Mm. But I can tell you, what I've been through, it's, you know, it's not doing wonders for me. <laughs> and that's the conversation we have to have. Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And this is, you know, we talk about, you know, a rotten system and this is a, absolutely about looking at the picture as a whole and not being so narrow-minded in terms of thinking about this. Um, Jane, I'm wondering, you know, what, what does it mean to you to hold your line and embody your sovereignty as an Aboriginal woman and a worker in the legal system? Yeah, I think um, holding the front line and embodying your own sovereignty is knowing your own mind, really, and making sure that your actions line up with it. Um, because colonists, their, their thoughts and actions, they're aligning really well. Um, but for blackfellas, it can be really hard to be in these spaces and be consistent and be true to yourself because, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these places, they want you in there to tick their boxes and be their stats, but they don't want you actually thinking um, as a sovereign black person. Oh. Um, you know, they're, they're happy to listen, um, but they were always going to do what they were going to do anyway, um, in spite of your blackness type of thing. So, you know, to me, knowing yourself well and, you know, your action leading from that knowing is embodying your sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jane, you are a busy woman in, in addition to fighting racism in the colony. Um, you do a lot of um, other work as well, whether it be voluntary or, or just supporting community. Jane, I'm wondering, can you tell me a little bit about your work with the Treaty Council mob and how you're working to make sure that treaty is first up on the political agenda rather than an afterthought? Um, yeah, so the Treaty Council are doing um, great things up there in the Cape York. Um, they're a central commission um, for allodial land ownership and I think the Treaty Council is really doing great work to, you know, start the thinking and action on First Nations knowings. Um, I think what we see a lot of the time when we're dealing with white fellows and white institutions is that we're using the same words but we're not meaning the same things, right? Yeah. Um, and even, you know, with voice at the moment, um, you know, there's a whole heap of institutions and white fellows that think it's the greatest thing um, and there's a whole heap of really apprehensive black fellows mm. because you know we're just we're using the same words and language but we're not meaning the same things and that's my apprehension when it comes to you know more focus being on treaty and treaties um, is that we're going to get sold some whitewashed version of a treaty and so I think First Nations mob really need to be on the front foot of um, leading, leading the way on it because we can't trust government to do that. Yeah. Jane, in addition to the incredible work that you do and holding the front line, um, I know that you're also um, um, a, an award-winning celebrated artist with your weaving. Can you tell us a little bit about your weaving and um, some of the adventures you've been getting up to? Yes. Um, so, yeah, people who know me know that I'm part of the weaving community um, here in Wagga and also on Darug Country as well. Um, everywhere... I am, I'm weaving. <laughs> it's a good um, 
part of the resistance. Self-care is part of the resistance. Ooh. And I really find, you know, weaving is one of those activities where you just stop and you bring your mind back to one thing. And that in itself um, is really sustaining. And, you know, I was taught weaving here by the arts in Wagga. And um, I've been able to bring that back on country to, you know, hold like yarning circles, um, using weaving as as the vehicle to then open up these decolonisation conversations, um, anti-racism conversations. Um, I find it powerful when, when you're hosting a weaving circle, it already alters the power dynamic because, um, you know, you're seen as the knowledge holder. People are coming to you um, to learn something from you. Mm. And so already at the beginning, that that dynamic is set up and then that flows through into the conversations that you have. So, yeah, we love our weaving. Yeah, and you actually did a piece for me and my partner, Bob, which actually hangs up in our lounge room. And um, with Gogglebox kicking off again this season, I've had a lot of messages from from family and friends um, about your piece, actually, that's hanging up behind our lounge in the in the Gogglebox lounge room. So, yeah, I hope your work and your, your creativity continues, my sister. Um, I, I just also, I guess I wanted to touch on, like we, we mentioned earlier at the top of the show, um, we actually met on a, on a volunteering trip to South Africa. You You've also travelled to um, a lot of places, uh, Tibet included, and some of our conversations over the years, James, we've we've drawn parallels between some of the countries we've visited. And I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about some of your places you visited, and in terms of what it what that's like as a, as a sovereign um, Aboriginal woman from here, so called Australia. Yeah, I think um, you know we process the world so differently, and you know it's coming up now in the next couple of months, ten years since I first travelled to Tibet, and of course. Um, it's still under illegal Chinese occupation. And, you know, being in that place, you feel and see things so differently because mm. it's the same dynamic that's playing out here at home. Um, and it can be really jarring to realise the magnitude of what settler colonialism is. Um, <laughs> and so I've certainly had those experiences over a long time now. And you know, in South Africa, there was a lot of um, jarring experiences we had over there too, wasn't there, Kevin? There was a couple. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of jarring. <laughs> all, all that time that we heard ru- rustling in the bushes and then <laughs> what did you do, Jane? <laughs> you thought you could outrun whatever was <laughs> coming out of the bushes? <laughs> But we did, we did have um, an amazing time in South Africa, but we've also spoken about the different experiences. Um, although we did everything together, um, as a, um, as a fair skinned um, Aboriginal woman and me being visibly black, um, it was some somewhat different experiences in, in, in many ways as well. Like it really was. And it's an experience that I am grateful for because, you know, there was myself and Sister Mossy who were fair skinned Aboriginal women. And then you other four mobs, you weren't so fair. <laughs> no. And so everywhere we, um, it was just so stark, the different treatment that we got. And I think what was a learning point for me in that time, the months that we were together, was that often the people upholding that old way of being and yeah. treating whites better than um, black South African people themselves. And... You know, I found that really surprising and confronting at the time to be there, but it really made me appreciate how ingrained um, behaviours are. And, you know, that, I mean, South Africa took its notes from Australia, didn't it? Absolutely. And, And I guess that sort of shocked me as well, that a lot of the locals we met in South Africa 
um, I think we were in Limpopo specifically, weren't aware of um, some of the other stuff going on, not only in Australia, but around the world. And those conversations that come out of, um, yeah, working together was really interesting as well. Yeah, very valuable. Jane, I'm wondering, is there any plans of heading overseas soon? Um, obviously, you've, you've, you're well-travelled. Do you have any anything coming up? Oh, look, my passport expired in 2020, Kevin. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So, well, you need to get around to that. So, Jane, I know these last Sorry. 12, 18 months have been um, hectic for you fighting racism here in the colony and, and going against large colonial institutions like Legal Aid New South Wales. I'm wondering if you wanted to give a, any shout-outs to any of the mob that's rallied around you um, over this period of time. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I give a shout-out to all the black group chats that I'm in. Um, those things are really sanity, and so thank you so much. Um, and a shout-out to Blackfella Twitter too because there's a lot of like-minded people out there and they're not always in the institutions that we work in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a powerful um, platform for black advocacy um, because it's not watered down, and so um, those spaces have been really valuable. Um, thank you, Kevin Yee, because... You know, as you said, we've clocked up a few lifetimes already um, and you've been someone who, you know, I've checked in with constantly throughout this whole experience and, you know, you've had your own experiences in this space as well. Mm. So you call it trauma bonding or whatever it is, but I'm thankful <laughs> for it. You're very welcome, my sister. And I know um, you've got a, a couple of um, fur animals as well that you um, have been hanging out with too. Did you want to give them a shout out? Oh, look, big shout out to Toto and Abby, who think they're responsible for all the weaving that happen- it happens in my household. <laughs> they really just run rash down the hallway. Um, and better give a shout out to Jules too, the other half of the Jules and Jane show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I know Mum's been holding down the front line as well. Jane, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, on AAA Let's Talk all things social justice. Um, I know the fight that you, you're in um, can't be easy and I thank you um, for holding down the front line and for resisting um, as staunchly as you have. And um, thank you very much for joining me and I, I absolutely will um, no doubt call you this afternoon. Kevin. See you, Bye. Now, remember, if you're looking to catch up with any of our previous Let's Talk interviews, you can catch us online at AAA. And um, I'll see you next week. I'm Kevin Yayi. See ya. No more whispering in our mind. Let's Talk, Monday to Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au. Proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.